Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're very happy to have author M.K. McDaniel, author of Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat, and you can call her Kathy. But M.K. McDaniel is where you're going to find her at Amazon with regard to her book, Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat, one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. And I'm really happy to have her with us today and to be able to share some of this information with you and to have her tell us her story. Uh, Kathy, your book was excellent. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoy your style of writing, which is very personal and very easy to read. But welcome to 1001 Heroes. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. Could you give us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to write this story? I had a pretty uh, normal life, I would say, with uh, traditional ups and downs. And uh, I was helping a friend go through a uh, bone marrow transplant. And I got very run down. It took about six to eight months for that process and then he died so I got very sick when a virus very similar to COVID came around this was uh, 21 years ago in LA and um, I developed pneumonia and then ARDS which is acute respiratory distress syndrome which is uh, also called lung failure that's what most people die of when they get some sort of respiratory um, illness so I uh, was told I had to go, they were going to put me in a coma because I couldn't breathe and uh, I wouldn't remember anything. They were going to give me some white amnesia, they called it, and just relax, go to sleep. We'll see you when we see you. But uh, that's not what happened. Um, somewhere in the, somewhere when they, I guess when they were telling my family to come say goodbye, she's not going to make it, uh, I was in the coma and I became conscious of being in a completely dark, quiet space. My reaction to your story was that it, it's a very personal story, and I like that. It's, it's, a, it's a good story, and it's inspiring in a lot of ways, and it certainly does make you think. Why did you choose to share it? I was forced to, actually, <laughs> because the experience that followed was so horrific and so unsettling um, and haunting. It haunted me. And I was always a storyteller and a writer. And uh, I decided way back after I got out of the hospital that if I could just write this stuff down and put it in a drawer, it would go away like a bad dream. Hmm. But uh, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And this was for years and it never went away. And I, I couldn't get anybody to talk to me about it. They all said, oh, it was the drugs or it was a bad dream. But I knew it wasn't, but I didn't know what it was. So it took me 11 years, I think, 10 or 11 years to find IONS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Studies right here in Seattle. They started here, but they're an international group. And they are full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have had these experiences. So through a series of synchronicities, I found my way up there to a meeting. And uh, at first it was, I don't know, I, I kind of felt like a person that had been abducted by aliens for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody wanted to hear about it. You know, they thought I was crazy, but here's this room full of people that had serious uh, experiences like I did and they were just people. And, and I was just so thrilled. I thought, well, finally, finally, I found some people. So over a few meetings, I thought, well, gosh, everybody's just having all these angels and rainbows things. And nobody went to hell like me. What's wrong with me? Why did this happen to me? I was a good Catholic girl. And, and sure, I screwed up a couple of times like everybody else. But I didn't deserve what I experienced. So again... It took me quite a while, but then finally I started reading books like from Nancy Evans Bush or Howard Storm, people who had had what they determined back then was called a dark NDE. Now they're euphemizing everything these days. So it's a distressing um, NDE. Um, and, and so when I found these other people, I started making more sense of it. And especially with Nancy Evans Bush book, I came to understand that it was really like uh, a tale out of a, a Greek epic where the, the hero goes down into Hades and 
and goes through and meets all these monsters and brings back the pearl of wisdom for humanity, that it was really a blessing. It is generally given to brave people and that I could start to kind of turn it around and feel good about myself having had this experience instead of just being a damned Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) I think the best thing for our listeners is if you could tell us your story. Our listeners would like to hear about your family, about the uh, relationships that either strengthened you or weakened you as you approached your NDE, your near-death experience. How did those events and people in your life shape the person that you were? And do you think they were responsible, plus or minus, for what happened and for bringing you through it? Uh, That's an interesting question. Uh, When I finally did, I had just one too many people tell me, you need to write a book. And that was at the last um, IONS conference I went to. I found my publisher there. She was passing out flyers. I was her first client. And she said, she just stopped me when I walked by the booth. I kept keeping my eyes down every time I went past her. Uh, She says, don't you need to write a book? And Mm. she was a medium. I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) And that's a person who is in touch with the uh, spiritual side of things. But I thought, sure, okay, I'll write it. But what the funny thing that happened was, you know, when somebody says, okay, write a book, you sit down at the typewriter and you just stare at the keys. Um, there's there's this thing I always heard about a muse, whether you're an artist or a writer or whatever, that the muse will come. And that's what happened. I, I, I sat down and the story started forming in my head and I would just start writing. And then I found that I was getting... Uh, my relatives, some of which I never even met, saying, well, if you're gonna tell that story, you need to tell this story. So instead of just starting with my original birthday, I ended up going to my great-grandparents. And I remembered stories that my my dad had told me about them, how they were um, dirt poor uh, Okies back in the, uh, just after World War II and, um, they were sharecroppers, and and uh, I remember visiting them as, as a small child, and we've got even pictures of us sitting on this this oh boy shack with a with a porch mm-hmm. and these old rocking chairs, and we're all sitting there, and boy, grandma and grandpa, and um, they looked like they were a hundred years old, you know, but they weren't. Uh, they were much younger, and then I, I those stories started coming out about how my grandmother was born into that existence and how um, she was the first one to leave the farm and she was not going to live like that. She was she was brave and she took her kids and divorced her husband and went into town and found a job when women couldn't get a job in a hardware store. So um, she did real well until uh, she was introduced to drinking when she was learning to date in the big city. So that ultimately was her undoing. Then on my mother's side, there was also... She was a, al- by the way, she was a strong personality. I really enjoyed your stories about oh, her. And she was an inspiration for you as well. Oh, and yeah. And again, my, very human. Yes, she was. And I was named after her. Uh, my dad wanted me to be called Mary. And my mother did not like her. And she says, well, we're not going to call her Mary. My favorite song is I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. Mm-hmm. So she's going to be Mary Kathleen, and we have to call her Kathy. So that's where I come in with this MK, because when I'm writing, I'm really Mary Kathleen. And then just in my other alter ego, I'm Kathy. But, yeah, there was alcoholism on my mom's side. Both her parents were alcoholics. Her dad was abusive, physically abusive. And so when my parents met at a synchronicity at a high school they uh, fell in love on the dance floor and um, they were 15 and 18 and my dad was determined to uh, never be dirt poor again and uh, he was at the time just even living in his friend's garage because he didn't have enough and using his friend's brother's clothing Uh, so he went into the navy uh, he enlisted when World War II broke out, 
and he was one of the first fighter uh, fighter pilots. They call them fighter pilots back then. It's kind of ludicrous how small they are now, but um, <laughs> that's what he wanted to do. So he got called up. My mother is now 16. He's 19. He got transferred to the West Coast. They were living in the Midwest, and he couldn't leave her. So um, they got married. They needed their mothers to go with them. They were so young. The mothers had to sign. And uh, that was my family. So my dad, as you can tell from the book, he was shot down over the Philippines in his plane. It, uh, he had to land on the beach, which was not a good idea. His uh, wheels dug in, his plane cartwheeled, he landed upside down and was dying. But he had always been an atheist. He had been educated by the Jesuits in St. Louis and always had, you know, discussions with them about God. But he's laying there dying. And he says, God, if you're out there and if you can get me out of this mess, I'll become a Catholic. Yeah, I like that part. And it was great because immediately three guys had run out from the jungle. There was live fire all around them. They pushed on his plane tail and brought him up and and got him out of there and uh that's another whole story in itself how he got got home but when he came home and we had they had the kids we all became catholic and that was just you know the way i was raised all the way up till now uh I'm going to take a quick segue uh, in that sure. you mentioned, uh, and it has nothing to do with the story, but I couldn't help it. One of my favorite songs, uh, this came from a John Wayne movie, at least that's when I first heard it. it. It was exactly a very old song, but I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. Uh, I think it was Rio Bravo, but don't quote me on that, folks. Yeah. But there's a scene in there where uh, John Wayne is uh, a cavalry colonel. I believe he's either major or colonel, and his wife had come to the camp where they were to try and get his son out of the service uh, and he was uh, standing in his officer's tent when the uh, cavalry singers uh, who is actually the, um, the sons of the pioneers uh, oh, came, for and, came and presented them with the song I'll take you home again Kathleen and they did just a fantastic job with it oh, I know no. it has nothing to do with our story but I couldn't help well, it it does I was named after that so <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you continue from that point, what do you consider the most significant trials or misfortunes in your life? When Dad got back from the war, uh, he, he got out of the service. We still continued to live in the Midwest, but he wasn't making enough money to keep, keep us together. So he went back into the Navy. We got transferred to the East Coast then up in New York, and then we got transferred two and a half years, four years later down to the middle of the East Coast for two and a half years, and then we went back to the Midwest for four years, and then we went to California. By then, I was gonna be a sophomore in high school, and I was really tired of being picked up and drug around and finding new friends and being the new kid all the time. So that was heaven. Uh, Santa, Santa Cruz, California was heaven, and that's where I wanted to stay. I got married there. I had three children there. The first one uh, died when she was two days old. That was the biggest tragedy of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I I was so angry with God. I, I, you know, I'd been a good girl my whole life, and I couldn't understand why he would punish me, how cruel to take that little little baby and she died a horrible death um so that's that was the first time god ever said no and i didn't like it um i felt i was being blackmailed by god that if i turned my back on him which i felt like doing then i could never see my daughter again who was in heaven it was it was an uncomfortable spiritual time for me believe me and it was so, rough on your marriage as well Yes, the marriage was going downhill after the third child and uh, got divorced. I was probably the first single mom, uh, single divorced rather person in our group. Socially, I was ostracized. Um, I found new friends and that was the beginning of the swinging 70s. Mm. And it was a wonderful time for dancing and drinking and 
just letting loose with all those inhibitions we all had carried forward since we were children. And it was great, but that also brought a lot of trouble into my life too. Uh, there was one instance where uh, a girlfriend's boyfriend who was a person of authority uh, came to my house and I I knew him, I let him in, the kids were asleep, but he blamed me for the breakup and he raped me right there on my couch. My kids were in the next room, the door was cracked. It was horrible. It was very, it was hellish. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe something like that had happened to me. So there was a fear now I, I carried and um, turned out later I found out he was bisexual and this is when AIDS first hit. So for many years I was afraid I had AIDS. I didn't know they didn't have testing yet. So that was a difficult time. I thought I needed to settle down. I found somebody through Parents Without Partners and he had two kids, I had two kids. It was like the Brady Bunch, except it wasn't. So I was going, I was working part-time. I was going to college at night. He was a teacher, the four kids. We had, had his half the time, mine all the time. And it was another very hellish experience. <laughs> I hung on to that till I, my kids were going to leave me and go live with their dad because they hated him. And I was drinking too much. And so I says, I got to get out of this. I just, I've got to get out of this. And I did. And what gave you the inspiration to be able to do that? It's not always easy getting out of a relationship. No, it's especially not. Especially with family. Right. Um, the good thing about this fellow is that he had been involved with this spiritual group that I had never heard about before. And um, I became a member of that group. Uh, there it is. Oh, gosh, many years later. They're still around. I still... Uh, I, I don't like to use their name because it's a very, um, it's not, it's not a cult. My mother tried to get me, um, you need to intervene, intervention on me to get me out of this situation, mm. but it's a wonderful spiritual group. And they gave me the permission with their understanding of what was going on. And, um, and that, that allowed me to, to, to get loose of that. Um, that also began your was really a religious experience for you too as well. That's when you found God. Am I correct on that? And that oh, kind no. of pulled, that kind of pulled you out of the mire. No, I didn't find God. I I found another side of God. Okay. I I was shown another the, the loving side, the side that um, loved me unconditionally. Uh, I was what it did was shake my faith in the Catholic Church because I experienced God in a different way and, and, and it just kind of started a crack, let's put it that, in, in my religion versus my spirituality. Okay. And then I was blessed again through a series of synchronicities to meet another man who was wonderful and uh, we got along swell uh, we didn't want to get married because my kids were still in high school and I didn't want to put them through a stepdad thing again, but he encouraged me to leave, uh, a situation at work that had gotten untenable, um, and start my own business, which I did. I never would have done it without him. And that became very successful. He helped put my kids through college. Uh, we were engaged for seven years, pretty ring and the whole bit. But then he got transferred to the East Coast. And by then he was working very, very long hours. He was going up the ladder and he was gonna become a vice president if he kept going. So when he got to go to the East Coast and I was on the West Coast, I couldn't do it because I knew I'd have to give up, sell my business, give up my family, and then just go live in a very nice prison <laughs> overlooking <Yep>. a <laughs> nice water view of out of the prison cell. So I, I said, I really can't do it. I mean, I love you dearly, but um, I just can't do it. Well, not too long after that, he found out he had cancer and um, he needed uh, a caregiver, uh, two caregivers. And he came to me and asked if I would do it. And I said, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about it. I just said, sure, of course, when do we go? 
so it was going to be just a few months later so i had to tidy up my life and and move to seattle and i came up here and and found us a place near the hospital and and he had met some woman and uh they had been dating and it's a long story, but she came along too. They got married because she wouldn't come unless they got married. So the three of us lived in an, in an apartment, which was kind of strange, but it was all about him. And uh, it was a terrible eight months. He'd be, he'd be better then he'd be worse then he'd be in, you know, back in the hospital and then we'd take him home. And it was, there was no sleep. Uh, there was constant trauma, constant stress. Then she broke her foot. She's on crutches. I'm taking care of both of them. And he passed away. I couldn't believe it. I was just a wreck, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual wreck. I had met a, a man during that eight month period that, uh, uh, had become friends. And then we were dating. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with him. Dying, I, I had been working part time uh, at the end of his illness because his wife didn't want me any, there anymore, and um, so it, it was it was a mess. It was a real mess. But um, and then I got sick, so I had given notice that I was going to leave my apartment up near Seattle and go back to my hometown. Uh, break Kathy? up with. Yes. Kathy, we're going to interrupt our interview for just a moment for a commercial break. And listeners will return right after these sponsor messages. We're back. We're back with Kathy McDaniel, author of Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat. Kathy, let's start with uh, the point where you became sick. Uh, what kind of emotional shape were you in then? What kind of support did you have? And exactly what was happening to you? After my friend died, I was very run down. I hadn't had any sleep in a long time. I was very stressed. I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I gave my notice that I would leave my apartment and go back and live in my hometown. But before that could happen, I uh, got very ill. Um, I got pneumonia. I took myself down to a dock in the box in the, in the nearby area in the middle of the night. Uh, they gave me some pills. I came back home and uh, lay down. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I was coughing blood. And so I called my, my friend, um, male friend, and he came and got me and took me in the middle of the night back to the dock in the box. And as I got out of the car, I could feel my life just, just draining out of my body and I blacked out. He carried me inside. They couldn't find a pulse. They got me to the hospital. They got me started again. Um, I wasn't breathing. So they put me in an oxygen tent. And then right about New Year's Eve, uh, my family had flown out. And um, the last thing, one of the last things I remember is the ball going down on the Dick Clark show. And mm -hmm. then they had told me they were going to put me in the in the coma and that I wouldn't remember anything. And, um, you know, good luck. So I, the last thing I saw was my dad giving me a thumbs up out the window. They had everybody leave the room because they didn't want to see them trach me and stick mm. the ventilator in and do all of that stuff. It's nasty stuff. Then what kind, what kind of shape were you in physically when they put you in a coma? Uh, had, you been, had you been drinking at that point in your life or was your body strong or weak or what? Well, because of all the eight months of taking care of my friend, I was completely run down mm -hmm. and uh, a physical and mental wreck. Uh, I'd never been so low, never been so low. So they told my parents later that I had a 38% chance of making it, that they didn't really know how to treat this kind of lung failure that I was kind of a guinea pig. Uh, my daughter got online and found a group, an ARD support group, and uh, they gave her readings to put on the lung machine and all that that she gave to the pulmonologist. And that's probably part of the reason I pulled through is that group. But in the meantime, for me, I was just, it was all nothing. You just go to sleep. But then I, I became conscious in a very 
totally dark place with no sound, and I didn't know where I was or what was going on. Welcome to hell. Now, it was going to take a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just stood there because I, I thought, how did I get in this closet? You know, why am I in a closet? And why can't I hear anything? But I was afraid to move because I couldn't tell if I was standing on a floor or a chair or I didn't know. I just stood there and I waited and I was really confused. And then I noticed that it was getting lighter and I thought, okay, dawn, I don't know what this is. And then it started getting a little reddish and then I could see this kind of roiling fog kind of stuff. And then I heard like people shrieking and moaning and uh, it was getting warm and it didn't smell good. And I thought, oh, this just can't be good. Um, and that's when I heard this horrible voice boom out. Do you know where you are? And I just thought, I don't have any other answer. I mm. just said, hell. And then this horrible, like, Bella Lugosi laugh came at me, and it freaked me out. And I didn't care. It was just a fight or flight thing. I just turned and I ran, not knowing what was going to happen. And that was my introduction to hell. Mm, mm, mm. And it got worse from there, as I recall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like a set of scenarios I've heard different people tell about their experiences and it's one person said I would blink and then something else I would be somewhere else I would blink yeah. that's the best thing I can think of to tell you because it's not here <laughs> you're not yeah. here I read Eben Alexander's book proof of heaven and yeah. uh, his uh, first experience was he described it as like being below ground under the tree roots and uh. everything was just mud uh, Oh. And it was an effort to try and rise from that and not knowing what he was rising to. Right. Uh, he didn't, I don't know if he described it as hell, but he certainly described it as a place you wouldn't want to be again. No, 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 no. Uh, let's start. Um, you pretty much were just had just arrived. You've been spoken to. What happened beyond that? Okay. All right. Uh, what happened was yep. I ran. And I found myself all of a sudden in a scenario that to me looked like something out of a, uh, a destruction movie. It looked like, like New York City had been bombed and um, all the buildings, the windows were blown out and, and, and buildings had fallen over. There was uh, small fires everywhere and smoke and, and uh, concrete, big chunks of concrete with rebar sticking out of them. And, and I looked around and I thought, well, uh, I've been a Girl Scout and I, you know, I, I call on my survival skills because I didn't have time to evaluate why I was in this situation. I just knew I had, I was fighting for my life. I didn't know I was dead either. So I, I quick and found this like crevice in some concrete and I ducked in there, my heart was racing, I thought. And um, and I, I thought, well, I've got to take stock on what to do here. So I'm looking all around, trying to see if there's any other people. And I've seen enough movies where the people get together and they survive. So um, I did see shadows of things moving. And before I stuck my nose out, I wanted to make sure what they were, but I saw things that started oh they looked like huge spiders like scuttling around i could hear the clicking of their claws on the on the concrete as they ran by and i thought i don't want to run into those things whatever they are and then i looked over and i thought i saw a person there was a something kind of hunched over behind another piece of concrete i thought well it's worth a shot so i called over and said uh, hello 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 um uh, do you want to get together? You know, I'll go get sticks. You you find water, and and this horribly lonely voice just echoed out, uh, "We are all alone here." And I thought, "Here, all alone. This is really not good." And then I heard there were other beings, 
and I was scared and I thought I'd better run because it didn't look like they were friendly. And I tried to get out and I, I slipped and fell and blinked. I, I, I was in another completely different scenario. And, and um, again, you kind of think what happened? But then now I see someone I know that's alive. So again, that was a, a clue that I, I, I didn't know I was dead, but there was this weird like television set with um, a beauty parlor set up, but the, the the angles were off, and the and it was like I don't know one of those old movies, uh, Twilight Zone or something. And my friend, who was a person that really cared about how she looked, she thought if you look good, you are good. And um, underneath all that, she was not a very nice person. Sometimes she could be quite cruel. And so she looked at me and says, wow, you look like hell. And I thought that was not really very funny, but uh, I remembered it. And she said, sit down in the chair and let's see if we can do something with you. Well, I thought getting my hair done is the least of my worries right now, I think, because this is a dangerous place. Why doesn't she realize that? So that kind of went on. And then I realized she wasn't going to be of help. So when I stepped back off the stage, boom, I was in another place. There was a incident where I found first saw a demon. Uh, I was in this middle of this huge acreage of blackberry vines. And um, I've been accustomed to those most of my life. I've had to cut them out of my yards. You know, they're, they're just really, you know, really tall and horrible thorns on it. And, and this demon, that's all I can think to call him because it was not from this earth, said, um, you can get out of here. All you have to do is despair. And I thought, well, that that's, I've been taught my whole life that that's the unforgivable sin to despair. I, I can't despair. No, I'm going to get out of here. I will get out of here. I don't know how, because I had no concept of God down there. Um, he says, well, you've got a second choice. Uh, if you can cut down all these vines, you can get out. So he gave me these like kindergarten scissors for cutting paper. And, and I, he started to laugh and I thought he's toying me, with me. And so I tried to of course cut one and when I cut it, it grew back and, and I just kept cutting. I was getting, my skin was getting all torn up and everything and he was laughing, but boom, I was someplace else. Um, there was a hospital. I was told to do something that was anathema to me uh, in, in, to be a, a person of assistance in a hospital and I refused to do that. Uh, the demon raised a baton. He was going to whack me one and I found myself in another situation. And this kept going on and on. Between some of these situations, I found myself on this long road and it was like dirt with potholes and rocks on it. And I couldn't really see because it was just so dim uh, with just the glow around it. And um, the landscape was like desolate, you know, just rocks. And I was scared, but I knew that the only thing I had was, was this road. So I kept walking on it and walking on it and walking on it. So it felt sometimes like it was a very, very long time. And I was, I was getting depressed. I didn't know how I was going to get out, but I wasn't going to give up. And then I met someone else along the, the road there. We had an interaction. This was another alive person and she was in a strange situation and uh, she wouldn't help me. So I kept going and going and finally met, came to this town where there were like zombies, these people just walking around. If you've ever seen Walking Dead, it was like that. And mm -hmm. they were walking around and I knew I was in serious trouble there. And I was, I was attacked by uh, a bunch of them who harmed me. And then I was told that I was now a group in a group that was going to go even further out to another outpost. There was nothing I could do but just follow these people. It, it, it started to snow. It, it was so <laughs> cold as, as hell is, is a real expression. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. so frigid. I had very little clothing left and, um, we were up to uh, like our, our, our uh, chests in the snow, just 
trudging, trudging, trudging one after another, just interminably through this, this expanse of wasteland and finally got to this shack that, that we all crowded into and it was not weatherproof. The wind was blowing through it and we were told that we were going to be uh, in a new line of work that was hellish. And um, at that point, I had been there such a long, long time. I just felt particularly down. And I mentioned to the demon lady in charge, is it just me or is this a particularly bad day? And she says, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, this is a, this is a, the worst day in hell. And I first time I'd heard the word hell. Uh, because on earth it's Christmas. And I thought, Christmas, Christmas. And I remembered, I remembered being in the world. I didn't know what I remembered, but I did remember a Christmas carol. And I thought, well, she's not going to like this, but what else can they do to me? And I just started singing. And uh, she freaked out. She came at me with her club and the other lady started singing. And when it came to a particular verse where um, Jesus name was going to be said, boom, I was in light. I was in enveloped in this bliss of love and and amazement and joy and all that had gone before was forgotten uh everything i was just enveloped in this wonderful joy and it, you can't you don't it's hard to explain nobody can explain how completely wonderful that is and the feeling of it and the joy and the uh just the sensation of every molecule of you is just saturated with love it's enough to make a convert out of anybody. Well, I didn't. I didn't know. You don't know what it is. I mean, you you hear all these stories about heaven, but there was no angels with harps or a throne or you know, and mm. you know, Saint Peter in the gates. It was just this love. And the amazing thing was, I looked up and I saw my friend, my beautiful, wonderful friend who had just died a month before I did, and he looked great. You know, the last time I saw him, poor man dying of leukemia. He had no hair. He was all blotchy and and, and swollen. And uh, he looked great. You know, uh, he was 53. Now he looked 35. His hair was brown instead of gray. As he, he was smiling. He was wearing a sweater I'd given him. And I didn't know what to think. I just was so happy. Just so happy to see him. And... Uh, he, I, as I looked around this space, I thought, well, if he's a, you know, it's, I don't know, isn't there a door or something? And I, he seemed to be standing in front of what would be a door. And I thought to myself, well, let's go. Let's, let's go. I, I, there's got to be more to, you know, where's, where's all this, this fun stuff? And um, I, and I did notice a, a big table against what looked like a wall, but it was all still white with this big, huge book open, like a architect's book. And he'd been showing me something. And I remembered saying, no, 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 that's gonna be too hard. I wanna stay here with you. And uh, he started laughing and I thought, oh boy, he doesn't know he's dead. And then he was really laughing. And I said, well, if he's dead, then I must be dead. And that was the first time it really dawned on me that I was dead. I was in heaven. I was with him. Didn't get any better than that. <laughs> and, when you go ahead, I'll let you ahead. continue. Well, the last of it was that he he sort of moved toward me and said, now, Mary Kay, that's what he called me. You've got too much left to do. And it took me a second for that to dawn on what he was saying. And I said, oh no, oh no. And I stomped my foot like a two-year-old, clenched my fists and said, no. Well, then I found myself 
Uh, <laughs> there's usually people have a little interim place before they they're shoved back in their bodies. At least I was. I I got to walk down this long stream and I met some people who gave me a message to give to my boyfriend that would soon become my husband. And then I came out of the coma. I opened my eyes. Boom. I can't move. I'm hot. I see my my family and friends all around me, and I'm incredibly angry. Disappointed is an understatement. I did not want to be back. You've had the chance to, you've been attending lectures and you've been keeping up with other people's near-death experiences. What percentage of the time did other people's experiences match yours? And did you, did you ever find any really close similarities to your experience and theirs? Uh, I think Howard Storm was the first one that I read that had an uncomfortable one. He had some demons and, and uh, some te- terrible stuff. That was the first one I got. I did find out later that supposedly about one in five have some sort of distress in an NDE. Um, but mine's the worst I've ever heard. Um, they say mm-hmm. that a lot of us won't talk and tell people about it because it's very humiliating, embarrassing right. to tell people you went to hell. So I think the yeah. 20% is probably right, but you just can't find that many people to come forward. Do you feel that at any part of your journey through hell, and this was a journey, you literally you literally didn't stop. You were constantly trying to survive, to get out of bad situations, and you wouldn't stop moving. Do you feel that if, if, you, if you had stopped at some point or gone to sleep or just kind of checked out that you would have, that your mortal body would have died at that point? That's a really interesting question. I really never thought about that. Um, it's all hindsight now, except that I know now that I made my own hell. I know that God does not condemn anybody. Um, I was taught as a Catholic pretty much that I would go to purgatory when I died so I could get my sins burned off and I could go to heaven as a pure spirit. And I bought that hook, line, and sinker, and I lived my life that way. I believed in, uh, you know, you get so many days in purgatory for this sin, and you get so many days right. uh, uh, indulgences, you know, if you if you do something nice. And, and the whole thing was a big math problem. And uh, I got my math screwed up somehow and um, had more debits than assets. But now I know that. At the time, I didn't, and I didn't. For probably 18 years, I lived with the fact that I must have been a terrible person. But but now I don't believe that anymore. I think I'm, I'm here, sent back, to tell people the only hell there is is the ones we make and that you don't have to go to hell. Just get that equation out of your head. Uh, God loves you unconditionally, and uh, we're here learning lessons we have picked our lives we have picked our challenges you do the best you can and what happens from what i hear from hundreds of people is we get life reviews and this is not a judgment situation this is just i'm told uh you're able to see everything that you did in your whole life every interaction that you ever had from the perspective of you viewing your own life to see where you did good, maybe uh, maybe you could have done a little better over here, uh, and then you get to turn it around and feel how it was to interact with yourself. So, if you were very nice to someone, you got that same loving, generous, grateful feeling that that person felt. If you were a creep to somebody else, you get to feel their hurt. Um, and again, it's not a judgment. It's just it's just. Uh, it's looking at your test results, but nobody fails. Uh, it's just <laughs> a reference. And uh, some people come back and do it again. Some people don't. I, I'm, I'm told I, our little human minds cannot conceive of this big, it's bigger than universal. You know, it's, uh, we, just, we just know bits and pieces, but I do know that God will not condemn anybody. So just know and believe that you will go to heaven when you die. 
period. That, that's a great message to share. And speaking of sharing messages, we're going to take a short break for our commercial sponsors, and we'll return with our interview with Kathy McDaniel, Misfit in Hell, to Heaven Expat, right after these sponsor messages. And there you we're go. back, Kathy. Yeah. There's a lot of questions I have for you. Um, sure. I already know you're an inspiration to talk to. Have you created a, a much happier life for yourself now with less fear and guilt and the and the things we humans normally have to deal with? Oh, yeah. <laughs> as, yes. as a result of your experience. Yeah. Yes. As a result of my experience, I know that um, just recently I had a really tough thing happen in the family. My dad died of COVID in January. I'm and sorry. there was, I, I, yeah, it was all right. We had a great couple of years to talk about heaven and... Uh, He's so great. You're pretty sure you know, he made it. <laughs> oh, he, oh yeah. He, he, I'm looking at his picture right now. I, um, yeah, it was so cool that we were able. To, I was able to get that story out of him. Uh, something he wanted to do before he died is tell part of his story, and put that in the book. But he's he's fine. My uh, publisher, who was a medium, uh, she and I never talked about any of that stuff. You know, the spiritual stuff. We always talked business and and. Uh, about three days after dad died, um, uh, we were renegotiating our contract, rah, 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 you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it was, it was amenable, but it was, you know, it was down to earth stuff. And all of a sudden she says to me out of nowhere, how did she start out? And I thought I'd never forget it. She says, uh, did your dad have a sister? Do you have an aunt? I said, uh, yeah, but she's passed away. And he says, she says, oh, I said, why? She says, oh, nothing. And then she says, uh, who's Mary? And I said, well, I'm named Mary. No, the other Mary. I says, well, that's my dad's mom. Why? She says, well, he said to tell you that when he passed on, his sister and his mom were there to welcome him. Uh. And, and it was so cool because my sister and mom had been with my dad when he died, and he was struggling with his breath. And all of a sudden, he looked up at the ceiling because I told him. Somebody's going to come for you. They'll either be at the ceiling or in the corners. So all of a sudden, his attention was drawn to the ceiling, and he got this big smile on his face. <laughs> he closed his eyes, and he passed. So everybody was saying, I wonder who he saw. I wonder who he saw. So <laughs> I knew who he saw. It was so cool. And then she said, was your dad a pilot? I says, yeah, he was. He says, okay, this will make sense to you then. He said to tell you that the takeoff was bumpy, but he landed safely. <laughs> yeah good you Wipe know out. so it's that kind of cool stuff how can you how can my life not be different um i just know so anyway there was this you know I mean, he wasn't you know he wasn't cold and two of the kids are starting to fight over one of the the things he was going to leave them you know as his navy medals or something and i thought and then my my sister got upset and i got upset and i thought this isn't right this just isn't right so I thought, ah, this is a this is one of the problems we decided to um, bring down and, and and go through as a family. And what is it I'm supposed to learn? And I mean, I'm telling you, my blood pressure had been up for two days. And I thought, what is am I supposed to learn? And that's when the other party on my side of the family called up and says, you know what I think? I says, what? He says, I think that that people are more important than things, and we need to get this thing settled. And I says, you're right. That was the lesson we needed to learn. People are more important than things. And I told the other half of this contingent, and they didn't get it. But, uh, yeah, it, it makes makes life a lot easier, knowing you've got a purpose. And when I get it all done, I get to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, know in, I know in my family there are some members of the family who have related personal experiences they've had with people in the family who had died recently recently i was wondering i know beyond the experience you had when you were in a coma have there been other experiences for you with with people in your family recently after their deaths other than your other than your father um just the one time when i heard my daughter um in the hall that was in the book when uh was this Lauren? Laurie. Oh, well, her Lori. real name was Laurie. Yeah. Uh -huh. <clears throat> yeah, it, it had to be her. Um, and then 
uh, my mom and I uh, witnessed uh, Lori talking to my youngest daughter when she was a ba- she was a baby and she saw something up on the dashboard and uh, she was la- the coo- she was cooing and laughing and talking to something on the dashboard and my mother and I looked at each other and said oh my god that's Lori and and then the baby went back to just being a baby so I've had little little things like that but um, I know they're there you hear them um, everybody's got the voice you know we just put it off as being your conscience or your your guardian angel or something but it's that higher self they talk about that's still connected in heaven and uh, so if you, you kind of pay attention to that voice, like, I don't know if you've ever had it happen where you think, well, wow, if I'd taken that other road, I'd have been in that car accident or wow, if I hadn't done this, or you, you've got that really strong thing in your mind or whatever, uh, I better not do that. Or I better do something else. Yes. The voice is really strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a. I'm going to ask you this question. What can a person do daily to keep focused on positive life? What do I do or what do people do? What do you do? What do people do? What have you learned? What can you share to help us live a positive life? All right. The thing that I, when I got back for many years, I still, even though I finally came to understand that the uh, experience I had, um, really wasn't my fault that it was it was for a good purpose i still felt like i had about a one percent human being doubt that this wouldn't happen to me again and um i after all i learned and and knew and was talking about that still haunted me so i i just said to god you know listen i i need an insurance policy i need you to (laughs) to tell me what to do or not do to have that ever happen to me again. You know, I'm sorry, but that's what I need. So over a period of months, I got words two at a time that would come to me very strong in the morning when I woke up. And uh, it, the first two be loving and kind, loving and kind. And it was just like echoed in my head. I'd go someplace and I'd see kindness is such and such. I'd see it written on things. People would talk about it. Okay, loving and kind. I'm just going to be loving and kind. Then came merciful and forgiving. Encouraging, mm-hmm. grateful, non-judgmental, useful. So I say that every morning when I look at my little picture of Jesus, actually it's a big picture, and I say, <laughs> dear Lord, help me to be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, grateful, non-judgmental, and useful. Now I just spat those words out like I knew them. I can't, I can't do that with any other thing that that's just emblazoned on my soul. And so I've made up little bookmarkers that I, I give to people with that on the back. So that's what Jesus taught. That's what all the spiritual leaders taught. Number one and number two is be loving and kind. If you do that, you can't go wrong. Every situation, look at it from that aspect. Am I being loving and kind? <laughs> and then then just kind of correct it a little bit. But I think yeah. that's that's the easiest thing to do is just keep in your mind. And people always say useful, useful. I never heard that one. Well, it's all well and good to wish people blessings and to wish them well. But unless you get in the trenches, man, and, you know, donate to the homeless, which I do, that's a big thing for me, um, or, 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 or do take, you know, do something, do something positive with your life that um, other people can appreciate and keep that in mind too. It's really not that hard, but I do have to, you know, like emblaze it on my forehead every morning before I take my first step out. <laughs> well, I think that's excellent advice. Do you believe we have a purpose here on Earth? Yeah, I believe I. Uh, we're here to learn things. So I'm here to learn all kinds of things. And I can, um, that's just the way I look at it. When, when my baby died, I can look back and say, boy, after that experience, I became very empathetic to um, people. And I had several girlfriends lose babies and uh, uh, there's a difference between being sympathetic 
and empathetic. Sympathetic is, oh, I know just how you feel. And empathetic is, I know just how you feel. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's a big difference. People can sense that. They, if they've had some sort of tragedy or worry in their life, if they can get around somebody who they, people used to say, you went through the same thing and you survived. You survived, you got your life back. If you can do it, I can do it. This is how we help each other with this, the tragedies that happen in our lives. That's a, that's a great point. When the movie's over and the lights go out, what do you expect to happen? That just makes me feel emotional because I know I'll have that. What I, It's called the heaven feeling to me when there's so <laughs> much love that comes into your being. In other words, a human being cannot hold that much love. And so when you don't have your body, um, your the love is just intense and the joy is intense and I'll see all my old buddies will kick things around. Um, I like to say this and people, some people get snippy about it, but uh, my group, my soul group is gonna meet in the bar and it's gonna have free hors d'oeuvres and all you can drink. And uh, and somebody <laughs> says, there's no alcohol in heaven. And I just, <laughs> in my heaven, there will be. I like a frank wine. <laughs> yeah, you go get your heaven, I'll take my heaven, right. <laughs> exactly, lighten up. I think if I had something to say to people, it would be lighten up. Uh, death is great. You know, there's so much waiting for us. Just just do your best here. Do your best. Keep your sense of humor. Boy, that's the number one thing in, in hell I missed was a sense of humor. Um, if you don't have your sense of humor, you're lost. And I'm sure God has a great sense of humor. I mean, look around. Yeah, <laughs> and we're made there. in God's image. And that doesn't mean uh, a human image. It means our spirit. We're part of God. Actually, we're not even made. Uh, we're part of God. We're all just little pieces of God's spirit. And we that's why we all are one. Um, that, that makes it a little easier to look at people that are a different color or a different I don't know, uh, live in a different area or do different things is, is if you can take that body and the situation aside, that spirit that's inside that person is part of you. Yeah, I agree. You are all part of each other. So, you know, lighten up, be a little kinder. Yeah, I agree with you very much on that. We're all children of God and we're, uh, it's part of the human nature. Uh, There's a lot of things that are part of the human nature that are hard to escape. Yes. But uh, we tend to be judgmental. Yes. We tend to, oh, there's a thousand different descriptions of, of yeah. human weaknesses. And right. I, I think a lot of us spend, a lot of us exert a lot of effort, I think, trying to overcome those human weaknesses. So that, so that by the time the movie does end for us, we hope we've progressed. Right. <laughs> and that's all we have to do is try, you know. Nobody's yep. going to be perfect because we're human. Well, I've really enjoyed our discussion today, Kathy. It's been uh, it's been an eye opener, and I think your book "Misfit in Hell: To Have an Expat" was well titled. And I, <laughs> I encourage our readers I encourage our readers to find it. Look for M. K. McDaniel's "Misfit in Hell: To Have an Expat." And Kathy, I just want to thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been great sharing this conversation with you, and I hope our listeners enjoy it. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I loved it. Thus ends our, our podcast. I got it. And, and uh, of course, I know I have to look forward to the next life and the next conversation. We'll see where that one goes. Oh, yeah. We'll just, eat, we'll just high five each other, okay? <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye.